My name's Rod, and my pronouns are he and him, and uh, just want to add my welcome to the welcome of Annika and Stu. I, um, we're doing a series on tears and laughter at the moment, and um, as we're singing that last song, I had a, just a fantastic kind of tears and laughter experience of being kind of moved to tears by the experience of singing with you all um, and my connection to God as mother. And yet at the same time, there was another part of my brain going, is it really possible to be suddenly unaware of something? Um, <laughs> I don't think so. Um, that's right. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Oh, and then my dad was suddenly unaware. So welcome. I want to dedicate uh, my, this, well, not, it's not my talk, it's our teaching and learning session <laughs> to my mum, and uh, you'll find out why, why later on, because uh, it, I don't know, there's just a lot, a lots about this morning that really connects to her. Uh, so we're in the laughter phase of our Tears and Laughter series, you'll be pleased to know, and um, last week, Shane shared, um, I counted them, there are about seven ways in which laughter could um, be, um, a, make a beautiful contribution to our engagement with our, and processing of our loss and grief. So I would highly, highly recommend listening to that on our podcast, it's on the website. Sorry? <laughs> Sorry, yeah, he, he'd like me to clarify, not the seven ways, but just a seven ways. Um, but yeah, it was a wonderful week. And one of the things, uh, I'm, I'm just going to piggyback, because piggybacking is just inherently funny, uh, I'm going to piggyback on Shane's talk by um, focusing on a couple of things that he talked about. Uh, and one is that he just mentioned in passing that um, he wondered whether some of Jesus' parables and stories were meant to be funnier than we realise. Uh, so... We're going to, to do a little exercise with that in mind. We're going to read uh, a, a little, not a parable, but a story from the Gospel of Luke. And uh, the first time we read it, I want you to just try to experience it as you might have growing up in church. If you did, um, just try to experience it straight, so to speak. And then I'm going to show you a little clip from The Last Temptation of Christ, everyone's favourite Scorsese film, and then we're going to read the passage again. Any questions? Um, uh, Mr Tumney's back. Would you like to read the passage for us, Mr Tumney? Thank you. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He replied, I have kept all these since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, There is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible for mortals is possible for God. Thanks, Ben. So I just want you to, before we watch the clip, um, yes, I see that cursor, Warwick. Um, before we watch the clip, I just want you to have a little moment of silence. Often we have, we will have some wondering and later on, but just a moment of silence to try to hear what tone of voice you think Jesus would have used in that story. So how do you picture Jesus' face and how do you hear the tone of voice? Um, what tone of voice were you hearing aside from Mr. Tumney's? Okay, thanks, Warwick. So now we're going to watch a little clip. This is, just to give you context, this is uh, the wedding at Cana, which is Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John, where um, he turns water into wine at a wedding. So this is that scene. Hi there. So um, just jumping in here to say that this clip won't make much sense to you just uh, listening to it because a lot of what I wanted to show people was visual. Um, it's Jesus being kind of cheeky as he alerts um, whoever his disciple is in this clip, I think it might be Peter, to the fact that there's now wine in the um, the jars rather than water. Uh, so he kind of smiles and raises his glass to Peter when Peter realises that it's wine. Um, and then the scene finishes with Jesus dancing um, in a, this kind of beautiful and exuberant way. Uh, so it's really those two things that I wanted people to connect with before we moved back to reading the passage again connect to this idea of a kind of funny, cheeky, joyful Jesus rather than the kind of sombre and very, very serious, perhaps even condemning picture of Jesus that we sometimes get in Jesus films and that we get from the way that Jesus' parables and teaching is presented to us in um, a lot of the communities that we grew up in. So uh, hopefully that gives you enough context to then uh, jump back in with the second reading of the passage and to um, yeah, imagine a very different kind of Jesus speaking the words in, um, in this story. Okay, so uh, I think we're back to where we need to pick it up again. So that was good timing. Thanks, everyone. Can you read it again for us, Ben? Um, so this time I want you to kind of imagine, not that face, but that attitude and that energy and that um, Jesus capable of, of kind of joking with his disciples and dancing into this story. A certain ruler asked Jesus, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He replied, I've kept all these since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, 
there is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? Jesus replied, What is impossible for mortals is possible for God. Thanks, Ben. So I'm just interested if that made a difference to your experience of the passage, to your experience of Jesus, whether it created different kinds of wonderings or noticings than the first time it was read, listening to it in the context of that kind of cheeky dancing Jesus. Hey, Jackie. Yeah, I think I've always read or heard that story as, I don't know, there's a sense that that it's about getting into heaven or not getting into heaven. But the second time I read that as Jesus inviting him into a much better way of living on earth, like the kingdom on earth, like that he could have a more joyful, meaningful life and be involved in something. And it was kind of a sadness that, yeah, that, that, that his richness stops him from maybe entering into all that there is for him. So I didn't read it with so much condemnation. Beautiful, thanks. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> the camel through the eye of the needle thing always makes me think of, it's quite Python-esque, that like, the knights who say knee, like, they put one of the, one of the knights, for those who aren't familiar with the Holy Grail, through a trial, um, a series of trials, and then the last one is to like, cut down the entire forest with a heading, <laughs> and it's like just so absurd and so ridiculous that um, it would have like evoked laughter, yeah. like, and I think that maybe that would have evoked laughter, yeah, and then, yeah, then just the, the sadness in the man yeah, in this passage anyway, it doesn't say that he didn't do this. Like, yeah, that he had this realisation of what it would take to enter into that kind of life. Um, and of course there would be sadness if he had a lot to give away. But it didn't say that he didn't do it or couldn't do it. Like, and then thirdly, just because people always speak in threes who know things, um, the, the impossible, what's possible, impossible for mortals is possible for God just the kind of like universal salvation angle on that of just being like that God has ways of just making things possible. So even in that sadness and even with like the kind of unexpected twist is that maybe Jesus was able to invite this man in such a way that he was able to do a really hard thing. Yeah. Hey, just This is absolutely silly, but I, I was... I just thought, like, what if the guy's like, hey, I'm really rich. I could just make a huge needle that I could just walk a camel through. <laughs> I've got big needle money. <laughs> um, so I came from a tradition where, like, my mum talks about black and white and she recently admitted that there is grey but doesn't mean she has to like it so she would read that really literally and Jesus would be teaching and it would be this very big deep and meaningful thing 
But you kind of read it and you say, um, he says, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. You know the commandments. And then he lists all these things like, and they don't apply to me. Kind of, you go, oh, which ones did he do? (laughs) It changes it, yeah. Thanks, Deb. Anyone else? was interesting listening to Sean talk about the fact that the guy never actually fails mm. that like when I've read this I've always assumed that he just didn't do it because he was sad because it says he's sad but never thought that it was still a choice that he like it was like a choice that he hadn't made yet I think in Matthew or Mark he walks away sad but in this one it's left open which is beautiful again it's just it's just fantastic the way we have these different versions of the stories with different possibilities. Um, yeah, it's interesting that uh, um, later interpreters tried to make this passage more sensible. So they said, oh, maybe camel, because camel and the word rope is similar in Greek, so oh, maybe it was a mistranscription of the passage. Um, and then other people said, oh, I think there must have been a gate in the wall that was called the eye of the needle that you had to unload the camels to get them through and all of that stuff, rather than just sitting with the absurdity of it. And um, yes, yeah, one of the things that I liked to imagine was that, um, as Jackie said, that when Jesus uses this ridiculous metaphor, it's, it's an invitation, it's a use of absurdity and humour as an invitation to this man to not experience this as heavy, but as, as an invitation to a different kind of lightness. Um, you know, Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that, yeah, the idea that, that Jesus is, rather than condemning and going, here's an impossible thing to jump over. Haha, see, you couldn't do it, so you're condemned. Just going... Um, this is so counterintuitive, but it's beautiful, and I want to invite you to do this thing which feels painful but will be for your liberation. And so then using humour to go every strategy to try to draw this man into the kingdom of play and lightness. It's such a different way of reading it and experiencing it. Um, and it's not... I mean, even with the, the last line... Um, then who can be saved? I, you know, it's possible to experience Jesus as exasperated by the question of who can be saved and going, oh, <laughs> you, you're missing the point. I'm not trying to create a heavy thing, you know. God can do it. Don't worry about it. Yeah, don't, don't experience this as heavy. Um, and again, it's not, it's not to say, oh, okay, this is the right way to read this passage. There are many different ways to read this passage, but it's just recognising that um, it's possible to read more lightness and more laughter into the Gospels. Um, And that it's okay to do that. It's okay to play with the text. It's okay to... The the Bible doesn't provide tone, so we have to provide that. And it's okay to experiment with the tone that we bring to the way that, in this passage, Jesus speaks, to make it feel lighter. One of the things I can also recommend if you want to bring a lighter 
texture to your reading of Jesus' words is watching clips from Godspell on YouTube. <laughs> it's a 1973 musical um, where Jesus is, again, very white, but dressed as a clown. So that's, that's positive. <laughs> and it's, it's so hippie flower power, as you can see, um, and just so full of joy, even though they're all quoting the King James Bible all the time. But, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll come back to this, other, whether other people have recommendations for how, they can, how, how you can experience the Gospels with greater lightness. Um, but all of this discussion and looking at this passage in this way was inspired for me um, by uh, one, of the, one, of, one of us seven ways that Shane talked about laughter in relation to loss. And I'll paraf- this is my paraphrase, um, but um, when you lose someone, laughter can remind you that they were human and not angelic. If we make them into someone they are not, they become t- we become detached from them. Sorry, definitely my paraphrase. We become detached from them. Laughter helps to prevent this. It also allows us to acknowledge the messiness of loss that there are ways in which death can be a relief or a respite. Laughter can help us make space for that complexity and relieve the shame that can accompany it. So Shane was talking about the loss of a loved one or the loss of someone in our family, but uh, this week it occurred to me that we can apply this to our relationship with the Bible as well. In the tradition I grew up in, um, the Bible was made angelic. It was made divine. And there was no space for the human in it. And that did detach me from the Bible. It made it seem heavy and alien and difficult. Something that had to be obeyed rather than something you could have a conversation with. Something heavy rather than something that could be light. And the messiness and the humanity in the text was ignored or hidden or kind of swept under the carpet. And it really it created this unbearable seriousness about the Bible. Do people relate to that? Is that does that ring true to your experience of the text? Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, it almost, I know we use this language and I don't use it um, carelessly, but it almost becomes an abusive relationship where you feel like you need to be reading this text. You need to keep coming back to it and every time you come back to it, it kind of beats you up. Um, and there has to be another way for us if the Bible is going to continue to have a place for us and for our community. Um, now, obviously, with that kind of relationship, for many of us, we just need to stop reading it and we need to have a really healthy distance from it for a time. For some of us, for some of us perhaps the damage was so great that we um, need to take years, perhaps a lifetime, off reading the Bible. Um, but for me, at least, um, laughter, humour and lightness reintroducing a sense of humanity into my engagement with the Bible has allowed me to form a different kind of relationship. I needed some time off as well, but um, 
I guess, yeah, today I want just to be an invitation to exploring that possibility of introducing a more human, a more playful and a funnier relationship with the Bible and with the Gospels. Um, I think that can happen in, in like two different but related ways. Uh, so the first thing is, is just um, to recognise that the Bible is a lot funnier than we realise, uh, especially uh, in the original languages. Uh, Hebrew is a very, very funny, playful, ambiguous language. It has a small vocabulary, so a lot of words are made, words are made to do a lot of work, and so it creates all this ambiguity, all this possibility of different interpretations. Um, words for abstract concepts also relate to, to very physical concepts. So it's very grounded, it's very physical, it's very human, and it's also very funny. So that's one way in which we can experience more humour is to sort of, you know, listen to people and read books um, by, you know, Jewish interpreters of the Bible who can put us in touch with the humour of it. Um, and the other way, of course, is to, to bring our own sense of humour and play to the text, um, to, to recognise that that's okay, that um, if God chose a language like Hebrew to have the scripture written down in, then God is clearly okay with play and with humour and with ambiguity. And I guess that's the heart of it. The heart of it is the kind of God that sits behind this very human text. And if we can allow ourselves to, to trust that God is okay with play, that God is playful, um, then that allows us to give ourselves permission to play with the text. This, um, the passage from Luke 18 that we read comes just after the scene where some children are coming to Jesus and the disciples are saying, no, you can't come because this is a very serious Messiah. And Jesus says, what are you doing? Let the children come to me. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless they come to the kingdom of God like a child. And what are children like when it comes to texts? They're full of play, full of questions. No question is off the table. If you've read any book with a child, you realise that, that laughter is always a part of their engagement with any text. Um, and a, a very, very fine attunement to kind of ambiguity and absurdity in the text. Yeah. So let's be children in our engagement with the text and have play, have fun, play with it and recognise that um, just as they say play is children's work, it's a very serious matter to laugh at the Bible because it allows us, as with people that we lose, to, to bring them down, to recognise their humanity and to engage with them in a way that brings life rather than heaviness. Um, so I said before, um, when I was mentioning all those Godspell clips that I watched during the week, that I was interested to know if 
any, anyone else has little tricks or habits that they use to try to introduce a greater sense of play or fun or laughter into their engagement with scripture. Um, and I mean that in a pretty broad sense. One, one, while you're thinking, one other thing that I used to love to do was to play, doesn't sound like playful, but play Sigur Ross tracks. I don't know if you know Sigur Ross, but this is kind of beautiful, um, kind of atmospheric Icelandic band. And I would just be looking at a psalm and I would just play that and I would just choose a little bit of it and I would just kind of improvise um, over the top of these things as a way of um, playful engagement with the text rather than feeling like I had to just sit and read it and meditate on it. Anyone else got anything? Tamsin's got something. Um, when I was kind of going through my years of just challenge, of sort of what you've identified of just going, oh, I don't know how to relate to the Bible anymore. I should be. I have nothing. But um, I, I think back in sort of church days, you'd do the kind of what do they call it, Bible roulette, where you just open the Bible and the Holy Spirit leads you, and you put your finger on, and and you know, the lo and behold, you should kill all the memorites or something. <laughs> and you're like. What does that mean? Um, but but I sort of just started doing that just kind of ironically, just going, all right, I'm so far from knowing where to start scripturally. <laughs> so I'll just, and it just it made, always made me laugh of going, all right, in this context, you know, I, should, I don't know. So it was just this kind of just turning it upside down of going, all right, I've just play with just the pinpoint. All right. It, it was really quite funny what would come up and you could just lighten it for me because it would just had become this big, heavy burden that I couldn't approach. Um, or I was always, you know, go to the maps. They always seem kind of interesting, you know, just go to the book of maps. You know? um, some, only, only sometimes funny, but, um, <laughs> but I, I just often just try and think of the kind of like human angle in the scripture. Like once you kind of, once you like move past that, like, you know, this is God talking to me, um, and get to the, <laughs> that this is people writing something, and there's God mixed up in it, but their own crap involved in that as well. Um, I've just kind of, like, seeing, like, seeing and being able to name and laugh at their agendas in it as well, like, the gospel writers, when lots of the gospels were being written, you want to go home now, okay, after this, um, we're kind of at war with the Pharisees. The Pharisees weren't even the worst of all of the sects, but it just happened to be who the gospel writers were fighting with 20, 30 years later when they're getting kicked out of their temples and stuff. And so every time they kind of like have a little dig at the Pharisees, this is like you can just read it as kind of comical of going like, right, we're going to spread this all around our churches and show these people who these people really were and how much Jesus didn't like them, even though Jesus is probably more Pharisaical than any of the other kind of sects around at the time. Um, and yeah, once you can kind of, it gives you a little bit of power over and distance to be able to go, they've got their own stuff. And like the Gospel of John, where it's like, Jesus, John was Jesus' favourite, and it probably wasn't written by John, but a community in his name, but of just going like, let's, let's put him in there leaning on Jesus' chest. You know, he was definitely the favourite one, because he's our guy, like, yeah. Um, on that, Shane, I remember in one of Paul's letters, there's like, oh, uh, can you pick up my jacket and my cloak that I left there? Um, which, for me, just captures that human element of it. And, like, um, yeah, I love... I thought I always found that funny. Um, and the other thing I found funny was um, the, like, people who insisted on just, like, um, 
basically your runs on the board was just how many times you just read the Bible through. And, um, and I always got so baffled by that when people were like slogging their way through like numbers and just like these unbelievably dry early books of the Bible. And um, yeah, it always humoured me that people would like do their evening reading, just like reading about all the different like weights and measurements in like the Old Testament. Yeah. If it doesn't hurt, it's not doing you any good. Conscious of wanting to keep it short, but was there anyone else that's burning to share their way of making the Bible funny? Oh, Ben. Yeah, just a couple of things. One is that looking at like the the visual absurdity of some of the things Jesus said, like you know the speck in your eye and the log in the other, and just like imagining people with logs in their eyes just thwacking each other across the head. It's hilarious. And then one time I read the Sermon on the Mount, but as if it was um, Jerry Seinfeld. It's like, how blessed are the meek? And it just added a different element to it. (laughs) Adding lots of question marks to the Sermon on the Mount. How how blessed are the meek? Yeah. (laughs) Who knows? Yeah. Uh, so I, I mentioned before that I wanted to uh, dedicate this uh, today to my mum, and the the reason is because uh, she was that um, subversive humour presence in my life and my experience of church. She had she's very funny, very smart, very dry. And um, she, my dad was a, a private school, not a principal, headmaster, um, when I was growing up. And a lot of the people on the board were like very important merchant bankers and barristers and all men. And my mum would hate going to kind of school events. Um, but if she went, the only way she could make it tolerable was to be the court jester and to... Um, make fun of these pompous men in ways that the women around would would get, but the men wouldn't get. <laughs> and my dad would love to come home and tell stories about this thing that she said to the you know chief justice, and how the chief justice didn't notice that she was taking the piss, but the chief justice's wife was <laughs> was killing herself laughing. Um, my dad wasn't so keen on her doing it to him, which she did regularly as well. But um, I, I know and I want to honour the, the half of my nature and the half of my nurture that I owe to her because were it not for that, I shudder to think what kind of man I would be now. Um, a pompous ass, I imagine. I'm <laughs> arrogant enough as it is. <laughs> Um, so thanks, Mum. And I'd, uh, yeah, I think we we all need people like that. We may need to be those people to each other, people who can kind of prick that bubble of solemn seriousness that often stands between us and a life-giving engagement with God and with with Scripture and with Jesus. Um,
And it is, you know, the the quote that we're framing this whole series around is is all about not allowing fear to dehumanize us and dehumanize other people. And that's the tragic irony of that super serious engagement with the Bible is that we're, we suck the humanity out of the Bible and make it this kind of heavy, lifeless thing. And that's my dream for this community that we can, um, in various ways, whether it's time off the Bible or new ways of engaging with it, we can find ways to restore humanity, humanity to it and restore life to it. Um, so... I can't remember what the passage was, but, you know, rivers of living water. So let's do communion so we can finish early and go and celebrate mothers. Um, So I thought for communion I would um, share a quote from another of my favourite mothers, and that's Rachel Held Evans. Um, But before, I think I'll I'll use the quote as like an introduction to the eating and drinking bit. So um, I'll get you to if you feel comfortable coming to come forward and get a little um, thing of juice and a cracker. We're moving out of COVID safety towards people bringing the knuckle of love to crack some of these crackers. So the first person to each of these things, if they want to crack the crackers and take a little bit of cracker, a little bit of juice. Um, The way we do communion here is that If you would like to participate in communion, you should participate in communion. And if you don't want to, you don't need to. So it's entirely up to you, but everyone is welcome. Um, So this is a quote from... uh, I don't know if you know Rachel Held Evans. If you don't, you just need to look up her Wikipedia page because she's awesome. Um, But this is from Searching for Sunday, Loving, Leaving and Finding the Church. Um, And today is kind of loving, leaving, and finding the Bible. So that's kind of appropriate. Uh, So this ties everything together. The word sacrament is derived from a Latin phrase which means to make holy. When hit with the glint of love's light, even ordinary things become holy. And when received with open hands in the spirit of Eucharistio, the signs and wonders of Jesus never cease. The 150-plus gallons of wine at Cana point to a generous God, a God who never runs out of holy things. This is the God who, much to the chagrin of Jonah, saved the rebellious city of Nineveh, the God who turned five loaves of bread and a couple of fish into a lunch to feed 5,000 with baskets of leftovers. This God is like a vineyard manager who pays a full day's wage for just one hour of work, or like a shepherd who leaves his flock in search of a single lamb, or like a father who welcomes his prodigal son home with a robe, a ring, and a feast. We have the choice every day to join in the revelry, to imbibe the sweet wine of undeserved grace, or to pout like Jonah, argue fairness like the vineyard employees, resent our own family like the prodigal's older brother. At its best, the church administers the sacraments by feeding, healing, forgiving, comforting, and welcoming home the people God loves. At its worst, the church withholds the sacraments in an attempt to lock God in a theology, a list of rules, a doctrinal statement, and a building. But our God is in the business of transforming ordinary things into holy things, scraps of food into feasts, 
and empty purification vessels into fountains of fine wine. This God knows her way around the world, so there's no need to fear. There is always enough. Just taste and see. There is always and ever enough. Let's eat and drink. I'm going to finish with a prayer, and then um, you can stick around for a little while. There's more tea and coffee, or you can go and celebrate your mum. Loving God, I thank you for the people in our lives who help to bring life and humanity and humour back to heavy and overly serious situations. Thank you for the role of humour in humanising the Bible. And I thank you ultimately that, um, that you are, I have come to believe, a God who is a God of play, a God of humour, a God of life, a God of freedom. And even though living that way can get you crucified, it's still the only way to live. I pray that you'll help this place to be a place of play and life and freedom and love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.